Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. We are offering three separate conversations from Wednesday night's episode, The Newer Diabetes Drugs and Patients with NASH. In this conversation, the third, all four surfers, Jorn Schottenberg, Fatty Liver Foundation President Wayne Eskridge, Louise Campbell, and I, discuss the roles that advocacy and education can play in helping broaden the focus for diabetes stakeholders to incorporate NASH and, more broadly, liver disease. This is a difficult but pivotally important challenge, particularly at a time when cancer is surpassing cardiovascular disease as the leading cause of death in people with diabetes, and hepatocellular and pancreatic cancers are leading that change in pattern. So this is pivotal. Sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. Drug developers, investors, researchers, and corporate executives wrestle weekly to understand what is happening in commercial development of NASH medications. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Stephen Harrison, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, and forecasting and pricing guru Roger Green as they discuss the issues affecting the evolving NASH market from their own unique perspectives on the Surfing the NASH Tsunami podcast. Why don't we move into the third and final section of our conversation, which is how health professionals, both doctors and other treating professionals, are likely to handle this set of issues around these classes of drugs and patients with diabetes and fatty liver disease. And let me just go first back to Wayne's comments, which is diabetes tends to be treated by doctors that don't look at the liver. And fatty liver disease is something you can have for a long time without knowing about is your personal situation and many others can attest to. So somehow we would need to get the doctors who are treating diabetes to focus on some liver metrics to be able to surface the problem, I think. My view of this is, of course, diabetologists are very experienced in assessing a patient for complications of diabetes, including checking heart, kidney, eyes, and all all these aspects. At this point in time, I think it needs the strong patient voice. And that's why I'm so thrilled to be here with Wayne and Louise and, of course, all the patient advocates you have brought on to push liver on the agenda of that workup in diabetologists' practices. Because it's real, it's happening, it's, uh, it, it impairs the patient's quality of life. And by continuing this great work you folks been doing, the agenda will be successful that liver can be part of that workup. Now, looking from the physician's perspective, can I treat that disease with the available drugs? For me, at least in the German system, it will be important that I do have this in the label of the drug. Very few physicians are inclined to treat this off-label, even if the drug is available. And some data has shown this. There are reasons varies around reimbursement. There are reasons about litigation, of course. So I think those are two sides of that agenda. You need approved drugs. And on the other hand, you need to inform physicians, as Wayne said, and I think the way forward is to get patients speaking up. You are, and I think that that's fascinating. Over the course of the time I spent in marketing research, I worked in just about every imaginable disease. And I think the states and some of the markets where only wealthy people get really good care are the places where approval for the indication is not necessarily as instrumental as it is in the UK or Germany, or for that matter, virtually all of Europe, much of the world. The challenge in the US is going to be a little bit different, which is how do you promote and how do you educate? If you've got to teach the diabetes, to put liver on the panel 
or, or on the on the array of organs for which they're testing regularly. Someone's got to make that happen. Now, one hope is that if the diagnostics get better, somebody you know, the major reference labs, the quests and the lab cores might have the ability to push liver tests on diabetic patients through their window. A lot of the increased awareness of cholesterol in the States in the 80s and 90s came because the reference labs decided they were not going to highlight elevated cholesterol at two standard deviations from the mean, as they do with everything else. They were just going to pick some levels that they thought were too high, and they were going to say, this is a problem. At that point, doctors saw a flashing red mark, and they said, okay, that's a problem. That may be what has to happen here. I have a hard time visualizing the process in the States by which that education takes place or that transference takes place. Wayne, you have thoughts about that? We have thoughts all, all kinds, you know. <laughs> 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 Being able to uh, execute uh, any of them is really, really hard. Our basic strategy, I guess, is to try to give the patients information which they can take to their doctors and ask questions of their doctor. This really annoys doctors, but after they've been asked the question by three or four of their patients, they have a tendency to look it up and it gets into their mind. So I think our most effective strategy has been that sort of guerrilla warfare because there are so many messages that are being sent into doctors and patients and everything. I mean, we see millions of messages a year and we ignore almost all of them. So it's very tough to actually put information in front of people and get their time and attention to actually internalize it. So we try to make it become a personalized thing, something that the patient themselves will fight for, will ask for, to at least ask to be educated about. That sounds like the bottom-up approach, Wayne, where the patient goes to the... I think you can also, you know, with the Global Liver Institute and all the patient organizations, you can take the top down and start talking to the regulators and get their mindset. And I think you've come a far way and in, in, in that those discussions are ongoing. Um, and that has been one of the great achievements here, too. Well, I think that that's interesting. You know, Donna and I kind of are the two sides of the coin because <laughs> we have this partnership where she talks to those guys and I don't like to talk to them at all. And I, I talk to the patients and, and uh, we kind of coordinate ourselves that way. But you're right. I mean, it has to be done across the board and ultimately it has to become formalized. And that's really the part that Donna plays so well. It is kind of a pincer movement, isn't it? It really is. That's our intent. That's our intent. Is, you know, we're going to surround the buggers and beat them to death. <laughs> <laughs> beat him to life, maybe that's the better way yeah, to yeah, There you go. There you go. We're, we're going we're to we're bludgeon him with fatty livers. I, I, the visual on this is not good. It's, it's funny, but it's not good. Luis, what does Taoism bring to that party or other groups like you in other countries bring to that party and that set of discussions? Yeah, I think it's offering opportunities. One of the reasons that I do what I do is to try and increase access to non-invasive diagnostics, particularly in primary care. If you look at Dina Mansour's work from Easel, it is not difficult to incorporate an assessment for liver fibrosis in diabetic review. And her figures showed uh, quite a number of patients who had severe liver disease when they presented for that review. Two of those patients had HCC. It was yet undiagnosed. So these are preventable, but it is about education. It is about making it cost effective. But what we're very good at is siloing 
our own specialities and keeping them in their boxes. I very much remember comment to Vlad, I don't mind what kills me when I'm dead. You have to communicate. And I think that's very much the case. We do need to look holistically at patients who have high-risk conditions of other related high-risk conditions. Even if it is just a definite liver function test that goes in there, most liver function tests aren't routine in primary care. So you can't necessarily do an ASTALT ratio that Stephen likes. And I don't think diagnostics like Fibroscan are perfect, but they certainly indicate an area to investigate further in light of no abnormal liver function tests. Or if you're in remote communities, you can do some of these tests. They're small, they're convenient, they allow people knowledge. I think there is a fear of how much liver disease is out there. The trouble is, There is a lot of cardiac disease out there. There is a lot of diabetes out there. And unless we find the liver disease, that is only going to grow as both of those diseases grow. And I think how long can we keep siloed? A liver toy and liver assessments or MRI scans, anything that's specific to liver tends to be kept in liver specialities. But less than 1% probably of patients with liver disease actually get to see a liver specialist and get that help. We know that 75% of liver cancer when it's located is beyond treatment. When you are seeing, and we've concentrated on diabetes today, but when you are seeing somebody with diabetes every year, you have an opportunity to locate that. Liver disease is an early death. And liver cancer is a problem that's in all of these related conditions. And I think we do have to now, with Wayne, with Donna, with the British Liver Trust, with ELPA, with the associations in Australia, we do have to start to connect. But the day that we see a diabetes patient website that talks about NAFLD, NASH and the growing risk of liver cancer to their population is the day that we're starting to get that message through. You see that on all of the liver patient sites. You do not see it on the heart patient sites or the diabetes patient sites. So there is a stigma between diseases about discussing the other diseases that people might feel stigmatized about. And obesity are driving and banging the drum about language that makes people feel stigmatized. So we do have to look at the language language that we use when we talk to people to engage them and to non-stereotype them. Because as we've discussed regularly here, lean nephild has arguably higher cardiovascular mortality, I think you covered that at Arzold, Roger, than our obese Nash and nephild. But they're a big population, they avoid it. So we do have to connect all of the dots. Well, lean nephild certainly has faster mortality than, than overweight or obese do. And um, with fewer comorbidities, therefore a little bit harder to find and different. I think that's right. When you said we're very good at putting specialties in a box, my thought was that means we're very good at being bad, right? Yeah. Silo healthcare is an obstruction to delivering good health care. Amen to that. The question really is going to wind up being not where's the tip of the spear, as Wayne points out, the, the spear is kind of a pincer movement, but where else can we create leverage points for better integrative thinking? And that, I believe, will be a challenge going forward. We hope you have enjoyed this conversation. We are releasing two more conversations from this episode. And we will release our next full episode on Wednesday, February 25th. I hope you'll join us then. Until then, stay safe. If you're in the polar vortex zone, stay warm. And see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. You've been listening to the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. 
Have any questions for the surfers? You can send them to surfingnash.com and we will answer on the podcast or the website. Thanks for listening. See you next week on the podcast.